hunting and being an outdoorsman is just it's just like breathing to me. So I, I live for it. I created a, a brand called Rogue Dude. And if you are a true outdoorsman and a hunter and look at it the way I do, you are absolutely going rogue. They were uninhibited. The only thing that lived on those islands were bear, wolf, and six of black-tailed deer. That is it. The first evening scouting, the day before season, ended up seeing 17 bulls. I packed everything in, and the longest scent I've done by myself in the wilderness without coming out is in 22 days. So they grow really big, but depending on the, how the spring goes, if they have a wet spring or a dry spring, is going to substantially play a role in how their their back end grows. Literally, elk do, they fart, they, they do. <laughs> I'm not a true blue trophy hunter, that's not me, I'm an adventure hunter. Hey, this is Corey Staniforth talking with Living Country in the City, got episode 35, starting right now. Y'all ready for your dose of flyover state spirit? Straight from the concrete jungle? Well, put down your latte and pull on your boots. It's time for Living Country in the City. Hey, y'all. Thank you for joining me for yet another episode of Living Country in the City. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Now, if all goes as it should, and y'all are listening to this the week it's being released, that means I'm deep in the Idaho backcountry right now chasing elk with my bow. Or if it's all going really well, I'm next to my Jeep in the Idaho backcountry sitting by a campfire and admiring the nice six-point rack I just finished packing out. I mean, hey, a guy can hope, right? But talking about getting into the backcountry and packing out heavy, today I'm talking with Corey Staniforth of Rogue Dude. Corey has laid down some serious miles all over in the backcountry and has dropped some serious critters. He's just back from a super successful New Mexico elk hunt, but I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that. Corey, thanks for hopping on the show today. Yeah, absolutely, man. Glad to be here. So I always like to start out just kind of with a little bit of an introduction about you. Maybe uh, give my listeners some background about yourself and kind of how you got started with uh, hunting and the outdoors. Okay. Well, I, uh, I was born into this lifestyle. Um, my entire family, father, grandfather, great-grandfather, um, pretty much everybody's bow hunters. Um, some of my family rifle hunts, and I just, like I said, I am born into this lifestyle. So this is just my life. This is what I've been born into here in Southern Oregon, um, about 30 minutes from the California border, right along I-5. Uh, rich area for black-tailed deer, elk, bear, I mean, you name it, fishing, everything. So um, hunting and being an outdoorsman is just its just like breathing to me. So I, I live for it. And since I've been a, a youngin', I've been striving to be the best hunter I could be, not so much on a competitive level, but just understanding and having the respect for game um, that a lot of people don't really see the insight of the way I look at it uh, because it is just normal life for me. And I've never been been brought to it to look at it as a negative thing. This is something that I've been brought into as most of my life. I have not bought meat from the store. I have 
luckily been able to eat what I harvest or what my father harvests or now what my wife harvests. We, we all like to hunt together. I have a core group of family and friends. We hunt together and we are all about that same point in life where we don't want to buy meat from the store. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know what that animal's been through, been through cages, anything, all that whole thing where you get into the, the conversations with either anti-hunters or people that just don't understand the lifestyle. And it's a great thing to talk to these people about why we do what we do, why I do what I do. I enjoy the fact that I know exactly where my meat comes from. And it takes a lot of responsibility and a lot on your emotional life, essentially, just to take the life of something. Some people look at it as hunters are just big bubba hunters and they they just like to go out and drink and drive and shoot animals. And that's not how a lot of people are. A lot of people train year-round, like I do, to be fit, to be in shape so I could be the best I can be in the wilderness. And I, I strive for that, to have the best gear, to be in the best shape, and to practice year-round. So when this season comes around through the fall, I can go out into the wilderness. I can pack into where elk camp might be, deer camp, bear, whatever it might be for that season. And I can ethically and cleanly harvest an animal and be blessed for that situation that I just took the life of an animal, yet every, and I mean every little thing from this animal gets harvested in my family. I have a dog business. I have a bunch of bunch of livestock, dogs, all this. These dogs get a lot of the organs that usually don't get harvested for many people. And they get liver spleen, heart. I mean, you name it. I give them that. They get the bone. We like to do bone marrow stew for ourselves and the dogs get the bones. We boil it out and use that as the, the marrow as the broth. Um, I tan most of my hides myself. We, we use everything and we enjoy that lifestyle. And it has just pushed me and pushed me farther and farther in life to really pursue this as a true industry in its own, which it has created quite, quite an industry. And hunters are the largest conservationist. I am a life member of just about every organization you can think of. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Mule Deer Foundation, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, which fights for public land access. Um, you name it, I, I'm a life member of it because it's, it's what I leave, live, breathe, and eat. And through this, through this endeavor, through life of becoming a, a true outdoorsman and believing what I believe in so thoroughly, I created a, a brand called Rogue Dude. And being from the Rogue Valley, where the Rogue tribe was, and growing up on the Rogue River, it makes sense. But in definition, Rogue is somebody essentially that goes against the grain of society. Some people look at it as a hooligan, however you want to look at it. The way I look at Rogue as the word in definition is somebody that goes against the grain of society. And it stands true to our society right now. Most people don't hunt. Most people do not understand hunters and outdoorsmen in that aspect. And if you are a true outdoorsman and a hunter and look at it the way I do, you are absolutely going rogue compared to what society is. <laughs> and I love it. So back in 2013, I started a brand called Rogue Dude. And it was essentially just documenting what I do, taking rad pictures, videoing stuff, doing podcasts with people, and just essentially having a strong community of people that understand that lifestyle. And it has slowly turned into an apparel brand and a swag brand to where now I have hats and shirts and sweatshirts and women's gear and men's gear and performance gear. And it's a slow growing brand, but as it is, the people that see it and understand it and look at it the way I do really are, are strong followers because of what it stands for. And so that's been pretty cool. Um, to run Rogue Dude as it is for what it stands for. And then for me, myself, just pushing what I do. I like to go and travel different states. Um, I like to share adventures with a lot of new people. And, and the, the really, really cool thing of hunting is I have met so many amazing people through this industry and not just from big sportsman shows and becoming a well-known hunter through the hunting community and, and harvesting big trophy animals. It's actually... Some of the best relationships I have in life to this date are people that I have randomly stumbled upon in the mountains or <laughs> coming out of the mountains or going into the mountains while I was hunting of just 
hey, just talking to them, seeing what they have going on in life, what how's the hunt, this and that, sharing info, sharing stories. And then over time, these this random come together of two people that live completely different lives in different states are now close friends. And some of my best hunting buddies are those people. And that's just a great thing because most people in the hunting industry are are usually pretty awesome people. And it, it's just a, it's a cool atmosphere that this hunting culture has created. But um, yeah, I guess that's, that's where, I, that's a pretty good background. I mean, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm 28 years old. I'm a journeyman lineman. So I travel around the country and work my butt off. And then I do that. So come hunting seasons, I get to enjoy what I love. That's awesome, man. You know, and you really hit the nail on the head with it that it's a lifestyle that people just don't always understand but it's uh it's such a valuable thing and it's so important to so many of us um and i i I definitely i was i was looking through all your gear um i've been checking it out and i i have to say guys you should really check this out um he's got some slick stuff here i really i i really like it i'm gonna have to be browsing on the website a little bit after the after the podcast is over. So, <laughs> yeah, good. um, so yeah. So speaking of some of these animals you've harvested, uh, you just got back from, uh, uh, elk camp. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, elk and deer camp. I did a multi-state hunt. Um, so yeah, I'll fill you in on that. This, this hunt has been planned for, well, since I found out I drew the tag in March, early April, um, New Mexico is a is not the it's not a state that you can just hunt over the counter. You have to apply, and it actually deters a lot of people because you have to front the cost of the tag, which it is kind of spendy. It's eight hundred fifty dollars for an elk tag, mm-hmm. but you know you're not going to apply or you're not going to draw some of these amazing hunts that is going to be a lifelong memory memory if you don't apply for it. So I've been applying for, well, I, I save points and apply for just about every Western state there is, including Alaska, all the way over to Colorado and down. Um, and I just got lucky this year. I drew one of the, one of the prime elk tags for the Gila national forest. Oh, nice. In New Mexico, which is, is, uh, well, well, well known. It's it's one of the best tags you can get in the state for at least that national forest. There is it's subdivided into now New Mexico. New Mexico doesn't have uh, like a point system, do they? No, they don't. New Mexico and Idaho are the two states in the country that that utilize random draw for everything. So you have to apply to get in. You know that's just the way it is. So I mean, it's spendy, but like you have a chance you know this you don't have to be saving up points for 20 years for your chance at this like you're you're all going in as a non-resident going in equal exactly exactly and uh that's the thing like at arizona they have they manage their their game a little different do a point system like most states do but new mexico doesn't they do random and so they allot 10 percent for non-residents to a to uh, draw a tag, and the unit I applied for, there's there's five different 16 units. There's 16 A, B, C, D, and E, and then there's unit 15 and 17, the 21s. Those are all surrounding the Gila National Forest, which is known for some of the largest elk in the world. Um, the unit I got is not, it's actually the least promising unit of all the Gila National Forest. It is one of those units that is kind of a sneaker unit. It's not known for the biggest and baddest bulls in the whole National Forest. It's actually known for the weakest as that trophy quality goes. But more research I've done and dug into, it does have that quality of bull. You just have to work your butt off for it. And that's my kind of hunting anyway. So I decided to take better odds for myself knowing that I would have to work harder and I've been doing that for a few years and I, I luckily drew the tag this year. Um, it's only a two week hunt, September 1st through the 14th. So second I found it, I found out that I, um, got the tag. I, I started planning and 
going in from a from a guy that lives in Oregon all the way to New Mexico. Obviously, I've never been in this country, so that's intimidating. But there's amazing resources for us. So I utilized Onyx Maps, downloaded the maps on my phone, on my GPS, ordered paper maps through Rugged Maps, and just did as much scouting as I could through what I would call e-scouting. And I would I just e-scouted, looked looked for what I thought would be good areas that would hold water. They had north and west facing slopes for bedding, south facing slopes for feed, and away from the road where I could get away from hunters. And I found an area that looked good. And so I figured I'd go over there about a week before the season started, maybe swing into Arizona since I already had an over-the-counter deer tag for Arizona. Try that out for a few days, then head over to New Mexico, scout a couple days, and then start the season. And since I had that Arizona deer tag, I uh, I hunted a few days for mule deer and coos whitetail, whatever presented itself on the New Mexico-Arizona border. And I got lucky there too. I mean, I, nice. I shouldn't say lucky because I don't, I don't essentially believe in luck. I believe in preparation and putting yourself at the right, in the right place at the right time. And, uh, well, with, you know, hard work, you make your own luck, right? You do. You do. That's right. So, um, I spent a total of four days in Arizona deer hunting. And on the last day that I was actually going to leave, I ended up harvesting a coos whitetail with my bow, which is quite a feat. Coos whitetail are amazing critters and extremely hard to hunt because they are so keen to their senses. Um, but I, I harvested a true trophy, trophy quality coos whitetail with my bow and uh got him out of the out of the mountains and that was a that was a blessing that was great and then that's awesome man i i'm actually chasing uh coos in uh late season coos in arizona this december cool that'll be fun that'll be fun good luck to you <laughs> uh yeah I, I, I like i said chasing them we'll we'll see whether i end up catching any of them <laughs> uh-huh yeah yeah it's tough it is tough so That'll be fun, though. You'll you'll see how tough they are and understand what most people say about them um, firsthand. So, so yeah. So I got that done, and that was my first coos whitetail of my life. And he is a true trophy quality coos, and they have amazing tender meat. So that's a great thing. He was still in velvet. It was awesome. So got him out, packed up camp, drove about three and a half hours over to the Gila National Forest got to where I was going to make camp, made camp up this last Thursday uh, morning, went out scouting for the evening, found the area that I scouted that I felt was a quality area, got away from everyone. um, And I found (laughs) the first evening scouting the day before season, I found, I ended up seeing 17 bulls. (laughs) Holy crap. It was amazing. I found it would have been normal where I found two bulls together and then another bull and then another bull by itself. And then I stumble across a bachelor group of 13 bulls together. Jeez. And that was absolutely just, I was in awe. It was amazing. Some were big, amazing bulls. Some were just average. Some were smaller, younger bulls. But either way, I found good elk. And that was pretty cool right there. That's a feat in its own just to come from not ever being in the area, not knowing how these elk act, what they do, and I found them. And so opening morning, we went in and uh, found some good bulls, but nothing mature enough that I wanted to harvest. So I, I held off. We hunted hard through the day. And then second day of the season, went out, and uh, I got into a couple bulls. So I started cow calling to bring them in to me. Um, and they just, they weren't quite there yet. It's still early in the season. They weren't into, into rut yet. So, so didn't work out with them, which is fine. Wind swirled. They smelt me. They busted out of there. And as you possibly know, when elk take off through the mountains, it sounds like the mountains are coming down. (laughs) (laughs) It, It is absolutely, it's breathtaking. It's crazy. So they took off. From all that static of them just taking off and crashing through the mountains after all this cow calling, another bull nearby that I had no idea was there bugles, and he is aggressively bugling, and he is pissed off. 
he's coming in because I've been cow calling, so he thinks uh, that there is a hot cow nearby, and then he hears all the crushing. So he probably thinks the two of them are raking or fighting or something. Well, he never heard those other bulls. All he ever heard was me cow calling, and then the mountains coming apart. Yeah. <laughs> so he's either thinking another bull sneaking in silent to get these cows or whatever it might be, but he comes right into me pushing a cow in front of him. <laughs> he he pretty much made her lead the way right to me and presented me with a uh, clean 56-yard shot and uh, shot him, and he expired pretty quick, and, and that was a solid harvest. Second day into season, um, I was tagged out in New Mexico and definitely wasn't the biggest bull on the mountain, but for me, he, he seemed like a mature enough bull. He was good sized and I had a, I had a good opportunity and the hunt can go south at any time. So me as a public land bow hunter, I firmly believe if you're going to hold out on something, whatever you think you're going to shoot on the last day of season, if you have an opportunity on that, you better take it right there where you have the opportunity because bow hunting, it doesn't work out in your favor that often so <laughs> i was absolutely stoked to take it harvest him got him out of the mountains and and uh i'm already back in oregon prepping for my next time <laughs> <laughs> you know man he is just you know i'm looking at pictures of him right now on uh on instagram and he's uh, just a gorgeous bull i mean like he is an absolutely gorgeous bull like i'm super stoked for you like that's that's super exciting yes Yes, I, I am so stoked myself. He is he is beautiful. And a pretty interesting fact, I went into this hunt talking to a friend of mine that is a guide down in New Mexico, and he filled me in on how the growth was for horn growth this year due to moisture content and under foliage and feed from the moisture. And that plays a massive factor in the way that antlers grow on bulls and bucks. So... He told me coming down here, I would find any of the more mature bulls, I will find them with their front tines, their fronts, their G1, 2, and 3 are going to be very, very long. And their back tines behind their, their big royal, their four, behind that, their fifth and sixth, where it goes to what we would call whale's tail, they get really weak and short and small and spindly. And he explained to me that the spring that they had was extremely dry in New Mexico. And then coming into early season is their annual monsoon season. So naturally, those bulls are always going to have big fronts because coming into the early part of the summer when they're just finishing up growing and they're still in velvet, their fronts, their G1 and 2 coming off their forehead, are the last times to grow. So they, they get the most minerals and supplements from everything they're eating from the, from the underfeed, from moisture. So they grow really big. But depending on the, how the spring goes, if they have a wet spring or a dry spring, is going to substantially pay it, play a role in how their, their back end grows. And it held true. He, he said it. He said we had a dry spring, so I can guarantee you the fifth and the sixth points on these bulls are going to be very small, and the fronts are going to be big because we have an extremely wet monsoon season. And it was crazy. Every bull I saw was just 280 of how my buddy told me. And uh, because, you know, their backs, that's the first thing to start growing out of their head when they first start growing in the spring. So my bull, I'm not critiquing him by any means in a trophy manner. But when you look at it like that, you can see he has shorter five and six on his whale tail compared to his fronts being 17 and 20 inches long. And uh, it's pretty interesting to understand how that goes with moisture content and what they're feeding on and how they're going to grow that way. That's really so, cool. Pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, I've never actually heard anyone explain explain that to me. Like, I've never had anyone explain that to me. You know, based on like, okay, they're getting these nutrients and this water and whatnot at different points in the season, so that's going to affect you know what's growing at the time. It makes makes absolute sense. Like, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It does, and it, it's just such an interesting fact with that i mean it could be backwards it could be totally backwards and i have bulls that way where their back end is massive huge whale tail splits big g4 royal and then their front g2 g1 and g2 are just little nubs and that's because when they first started growing they had an extremely wet spring so they had all the nutrients in the world for their antlers to grow healthy and then coming into summer it started getting drier and drier and drier and their nutrients started weaning off and then their front 
times obviously grew much shorter and weaker because they didn't have all the mineral supplements in the seed to get to that size, like what you what you would think to make them to make them match with their rears. So it's just really interesting how that all works. But it pay, I mean, it makes total sense, like you said, and you can look at it with probably the, it could be the same with humans and how you eat and how you're fed and how you're going to grow. It just it's just different because elk and deer and anything that has antlers shed their antlers and regrow every single year. So it's going to change every single year. No, no matter if their genetics have one way of growing, they're going to change depending on what they're eating and how the water is. So pretty cool. Pretty cool fact. Yeah, that's super cool. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, you know, I've been, uh, I was looking through your Instagram page today. I was cruising through. And, I mean, you know, there's just a little bit of everything here, man. Uh, I, was, I was definitely insta-stalking you. Um, Good. Good. <laughs> you know, I mean, you got, you just got some monsters on here, man. Like, some gorgeous deer, you know, some big hogs. You got a beautiful bear in here. Looks like you got a, a tom, even. I mean, all of these animals, you know, all of these hunts, uh, one has to stick out to you as a favorite. <laughs> would you, if you, if you had to, if you had to pick one, what would, what would the one, you know, doesn't have to be your biggest animal, but one where the hunt, where you're just like, that was the hunt. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I love it. So, yeah, I feel like most all of us hunters always probably have that one hunt, like you're, like you're trying to say. So, um, Oh man, that is a tough one because I am a jack of all trades when it comes to hunting. So I have a lot of different adventures, but, um, you know, all in all, my favorite hunting is elk hunting in the rut during archery season, because there is nothing like that to have a thousand pound bull elk trying to either mate a cow or fight another bull. And if you're trying to mock one of those and that bull is coming in either or to your call, screaming his head off, piercing sound of bugling right in your face. There is nothing like that. It is unreal. I have had a couple different times where I've had bulls within 20 yards of me, a thousand pound animal with (laughs) five to six foot antlers coming out of his head, the size of a horse with horns. and bugling and at the same time in a it's a (laughs) something they like to do when it comes to that season for smell for scent so cows know that they are around they like to piss on themselves yeah that's kind of a normal thing in the animal world and i have had them face to face with me screaming while they have an erection and they are pissing all over their (laughs) chest and their neck And they're pissing all over their chest and their neck to get the smell out there. And it's a normal mating act for them. But to see that and you're mocking that bull <laughs> or that cow for them to either come in and fight you or, or get lucky with you, that is unreal. It is just, it's unreal. There's no way of trying to explain it any better of that you just got to experience it yourself. But it's it's crazy you know this is kind of giving me flashbacks to rides that i've had on the on la public transportation um (laughs) where i where i have crazy people face to face with me screaming at me with an erection peeing on themselves um (laughs) i'm having having flashbacks i don't know man uh man that's too bad (laughs) um uh, to get back to your deal, though, of my specific favorite hunt, so like, like I said, that is my favorite hunting and late season rut hunting for deer, blacktail mule deer, where they're also in rut too. They obviously don't have a piercing bugle; they have a low guttural grunt, and calling them in is fun too. Calling anything in is amazing. 
it is fun trying to mock that species for them <laughs> to come into. But my all-time standout hunt, I would say, is my Alaska Prince of Wales Island bear hunt from last spring in 2016. Oh, man. Um, That's a dream hunt I for me. Got it, to me, I'm an adventure hunter. And like I said before, I'm not a true, true blue trophy hunter. That's not me. I'm an adventure hunter. Yes, I do like to harvest mature animals, and that's more out of respect of letting them grow and being a true har- uh, mature animal that needs to be harvested. But I'm not essentially a point counter and waiting for some big, amazing trophy quality animal. I just want a mature animal. So the adventure side of it is what gets me. That's what locks me in. That's what has me sold on any hunt. Prince of Wales Island was another draw hunt that I had, and it was the first year I ever even applied for it, and I drew it, which is crazy. And I went with two great friends, and we had no idea where to start. (laughs) Prince of Wales Island is a massive island, and it is unit two for Alaska for bear. But I wanted to go farther than the normal man. I wanted to go what you would think of backcountry, but backcountry around Prince of Wales Island in southeast Alaska is nothing but open ocean and small islands spread out through essentially a sound. (laughs) And so we just did research and I found multiple islands that were isolated from man. They were uninhibited. The only thing that lived on those islands were bear, wolf, and Sitka black-tailed deer. That is it. And I love that. I love the fact that I could somehow get out to one of these islands, hire somebody, rent a boat, whatever it was. When I was looking into it, this is how I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get out there, but I'm going to do something to where I get out to some isolated island and I'm going to just get dropped out on this island for a week or two. And I'm just going to hunt and live out there and just, it's just going to be amazing. And it all broke down to where that's what we did. We did enough research. We flew to, from Seattle, from down here in Oregon, up to Seattle, Seattle to Ketchikan, Alaska on the mainland. Bush plane from Ketchikan, Alaska, over to Prince of Wales. Craig Kowak is the town up there. I rented a small boat from a marina, a small boat. I'm talking a boat you would get for a lake, a 16-foot <laughs> Aluma weld with a 20-horse outboard. I, we rented that. And <laughs> we got a bunch of extra gas, uh, gas tanks, and we motored this boat four and a half hours across ocean that we probably shouldn't have had that small of a boat on. <laughs> and... <laughs> we had no access to anybody. We had, we didn't have any device to reach out, no satellite phones. We had nothing. We were solely relying on ourselves for anything. And if something went south, we, were, we would probably die out there. And that's something that gets me. I love that. No, it's not the smartest thing. But I love being out that far away from anything and anybody and truly experiencing that pioneer lifestyle. And that's exactly what we did. It, it was unreal. We went out, like I said, four and a half hours. We found on Google Earth an old abandoned logging camp that I did enough research and found out it was abandoned in 1962. And it had old buildings there, old log cabins, a big giant old tin shack where they drove equipment into from when they logged that island back in in the 60s, in the late 50s. We decided to go there and make camp where we might be able to find something that as a structure that's still somewhat standing a little bit better so we could have more shelter than just a little puff tent for three guys. Yeah. And uh, we got lucky, man. We found found this little essential town, little village, and out of the seven or eight – log cabins there was one that was still in pretty decent shape and we were able to hike about a quarter mile off the shoreline up to it and put our tent inside of it inside of this cabin which i think it was the mechanic's cabin because he there was old chains from a chainsaw hanging on the wall there was old bars chainsaw bars hanging on the wall and like a workbench that you could see that was just scuffed and cut and all this stuff it was amazing we made camp in that thing, and we were out on that island for <laughs> eight days straight and harvested three bears by day five. And every single bear that us three harvested, two of us bow hunted me and one other guy bow hunted and one other, other guy rifle hunted. 
and we harvested three bears and they were all extreme trophy quality and uh that's not even what gets me it was that being out there not seeing anybody not having contact the internet phone anything and just experiencing the wild it was amazing it was absolutely amazing that was that was a lifelong memory that i will never ever forget that that is absolutely incredible man i like you know i'm like i said i'm you know we were talking earlier and i'm brand i'm brand new to all this but i know a lot of what i'm feeling is that desire to just get absolutely disconnected and away from any sort of civilization and you know i i'm doing this whole hunt in idaho solo and you know i'm not you know i'm not going to be completely out of touch with civilization but you know i'm going in by myself and and people a lot of people have asked me you know doesn't that worry you and you know some stuff does a little bit i suppose but more than anything else i'm just excited about it you know i i the chance to kind of test myself and uh just find that find that adventure you know it's i i like that term adventure hunter rather than uh i it's the first time i've heard anyone use that i'm going to i'm going to steal that one from you you're you're welcome to it i love it but no, that's it holds true. It holds true, though, you know. That's one of those hunts. Everything I've heard about Prince of Wales Island is just, you know, from various podcasts and different people hunting it, and like now you've just even more sold me on it. That's just one of those dream hunts. That's like super high on my list that I want to make sure I do, you know, on the on the bucket list. Um, yeah. And I I just Absolutely. I love I love the idea of hunting bear like elk. Elk to me is just holds such a fascination. That's uh, that's like the animal that that I dream about every night. <laughs> but I just remember there's something, uh, you know, there's just something about bear too. Like they're just, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's it's one of the few few things that kind of lives a bit above us sometimes on the on the food chain. <laughs> <laughs> You know, isn't so much isn't um, isn't something you want to screw with quite as much. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you one hundred percent. Like for me, growing up here in Southern Oregon, we have we literally do have a bear problem. Um, we we are in Oregon. We're not allowed to hunt bears with hounds. We're not allowed to bait. We're not allowed to do anything. The only way you can hunt bears is just legitimately straight up hunting bears. Just you against the bear, spot and stock, finding them try to stalk them and harvest them. There's no utilizing any other method like there is other states. And that's created quite You're a, preaching to the choir with that. Oh here. yeah. Oh yeah. I know. I'm, that's, I mean, we're exactly the same I here. Hunt California. I'm not, <laughs> I, like I said, I'm 30 minutes from California. So I understand California very, very well. And it's just too bad. You know, mm-hmm. I personally don't enjoy get enjoyment out of hunting over bait or with hounds. And it's just not my thing. It's not, it's not my kind of hunting, but it is still hunting and it still takes plenty of effort and skill. And it is a, it's a, it's a vile way of hunting these animals. It needs to be half. It, it, you just have to do it that way or else these predators get out of control and it just doesn't work. And that's what's happening in Oregon right now. So I've grown up hunting bears like crazy in Oregon, especially here in Southern Oregon, where we have an overpopulation. We're allowed to harvest three bears a year. And I have done that many, many years in a row where I can harvest one bear in the spring and two bears in the fall. And uh, it's really not too hard because there's way too many predators. But looking at a true trophy quality hunt like Prince of Wales, where these bears legitimately get over 15 years old up to their max life cycle of 22 years, that's that's legitimately hunting a real true mature black bear rather than here a good mature bear around here is probably 10 to 12 years old just because population of people and hunters and that's just the way it is so that's what pushed us to want to really go and hunt that kind of lifestyle but um it was cool i like sharing that story and i shared that story enough we have an entire film on it and uh i actually wrote an article and it made the cover of bear hunter magazine for uh, May, June of this year. Oh, wow. So that was pretty cool, too. 
I'll have to look that one up. Yeah, Clay Newcomb is the editor and owner of Bear Hunting Magazine. He does an amazing job. Shares a lot of great stories from people around the country and out of the country. A lot of good tactics and tips. He's got a great magazine. But I just wanted to share my story with him, and it uh, it was good enough of a story all the way around that it made the cover for May June. So that was really cool. No, that's that's super awesome. Um, I that's one thing I I really want to learn. I feel like we're kind of at the point where there's a lot of resources for hunting elk. Like a lot, you can find details about every aspect of hunting elk. You know, I mean, I've got all the memberships, I've got all the info. Um, when it comes to other animals, like and especially bear, like it's not something. You know, you can still find posts on message boards where people are discussing stuff, but there's not like, you know, there's not like a bear 101, like there's an elk 101, you know, there's not, uh, and that's something I definitely want to, want to learn more about just because, yeah, I know you kind of want to look for, look for their food sources and that's about the extent I know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and it depends on where you hunt and how the hunting methods are, are pursued. But, yeah, I agree with you. It's not – it doesn't It doesn't engulf and capture as many people like elk does. Elk is just – it's the icon of America when it comes to hunting. It's just plain and simple. That's what it is. Um, but, yeah, when you go to look to hunt these other critters, there there isn't as much out there. And uh, it's kind of tough. but if you just do research and look into it, like I said, Bear Hunter Magazine, Bear Hunting Magazine, he, he has a lot of great info in there. So that's that's a resource. There's resources everywhere, but there is some that just aren't out there as strongly as the stuff for elk is, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's not in that just easily accessible format. You know, it's something either you need a physical copy of or, you know, yeah, the resources are out there, but... It'd be it'd be interesting to see just you know I was talking with one of my coworkers today uh he's a he's a hunter and we were talking about how this is right now it's kind of a new cycle a new era for hunting and and you have all of these resources and uh you know everyone feels like holy crap how can you know it get any crazier and we're just talking like it hasn't even begun to peak yet with the amount of information that's out there for people. More stuff is just going to be coming out. Um, And you know, and it has its pluses and minuses, you know, more, it's going to attract more people to hunting, which is always awesome. But then it's also going to attract more people to hunting, which kind of (laughs) sucks. It's like, Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. It's getting crowded out here. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, I don't know. I really had that mindset a while back as well of uh, being crowded, more people. But you know what? The more hunters there are, that I feel like it's a it's a better thing. The more understanding uh, there's going to be misunderstood hunters. But all in all, I feel like the more hunters there are, the better it is because that's just people reconnecting to our roots essentially and that's going to eventually turn into more people that are educated and understand the lifestyle. And that's why we have organizations in place like backcountry hunters and anglers that has, they fight for public land use. So that's huge. There's, there's public land. We all have to share it. We need to learn how to share it and understand, but that's essentially what's going to break up from, from the average everyday hunter that just hunts right there real close and accessible to the person that really wants to get out in the wild and, and enjoy that ex- adventure hunting and, and push farther, farther and farther into public land to get away from people. So it's not a bad thing, but uh, the knowledge and resources out there, I, they're, they're great. And it just, like you said, there's getting to be more and more and more, but that's, that can't be a negative thing. That's a, absolutely a positive thing. Well, and the way I figured it and kind of what we talked about was that, yeah, there's going to be a period where things are going to get really crowded. More people are going to be coming out. It's going to be harder to get tags. But a lot of those people, they're not going to be that same group that is just obsessed. You know, it's oh, yeah. it's not going to become a lifestyle for them. You know, they may go hunting a few years in a row. That may be it. 
or they may just go every couple of years or just that one weekend a year, whatever it may be, but they're not going to be just completely engulfed by the lifestyle like so many people are. Yeah. But the benefit of that is they're going to be now educated about that. And while they may not be out hunting all the time anymore or, you know, years later, whatever that is, when things come on ballot, when when different propositions come up that affect hunting and fishing and the outdoors, uh, they're going to already have that positive view. They're going to look back and be like, you know what? That was amazing. Like I have no issues with that. And I think, I think that is, is just a benefit that we don't focus on nearly enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. I, I agree with you immensely there. And, and you know what I mean with, you say, somebody wants to try it out and they just go and and try out hunting for a weekend and like you said maybe they're not they're not engulfed they're not obsessed like i am that's okay that's totally okay they're going to have a better understanding of what it is what the lifestyle is and actually firsthand experience what it is and why people get so engulfed and obsessed in this lifestyle and regardless all in all if somebody doesn't disagree with it they want to try it but they're not super into it Either way, if that person decides to buy a tag and a license and essentially maybe a parking permit or a trail access fee or whatever it is, any of that goes to conservation, anything, buying a tag, buying a license for in-state resident or an out-of-state, either way, that money is going to good use. It is not just disappearing. It's not just a fee for you to do it. That is in turn in place to take care of this for future people. You know what I mean? For for future access, it goes to conservation. So it's it's all in all, it's just an all around positive thing. No, absolutely. So what's your what's your dream hunt, Corey? What uh, <laughs> you know, anywhere, any animal, money notwithstanding. You know, it could be something you've hunted before. It could be something you, you know, you've you've always wanted to hunt. What is what is the one hunt you haven't gotten to do yet that you that you just are are dying to do? <laughs> that is a pretty easy one for me because I think about it all the time. I just uh, I don't have the money <laughs> to do this hunt. But if uh, sometime in my life I get the opportunity to save up to be able to do this life adventure, um, I want to go to Kyrgyzstan and I want to hunt. Mid-Asian Ibex, Marco Polo, and Altai Argali. It's a trifecta hunt. I would like to hunt the three species that are that are there, south of Russia, north of Pakistan. It is about as rural wilderness as you could get into in the entire world, um, one of them. Uh, for most research I've, I've read and people I've talked to, it's about a week adventure just to get to where you're going to actually start hunting. Oh man. Um, flights, small bush plane flights after obviously your large main connection flights. And then to the old school six wheel military track machines that take you way up in the mountains and then horseback in to where they can't go any farther and then pack it in on foot even more. It just takes a long time to get back into this country. That is extremely high elevation um very very rugged and uh for the most part like i've explained to you how i am an adventure hunter and relying on myself that's what this hunt is there has been every single year there is guides and hunters and multiple people that pass away during this hunt because it is so far back in there and such a hard hunt you're you'll you're scare, scaling cliffs you're in ice-packed glacier-type areas, snow. I mean, you can run into anything. And the honest truth of it all, what is kind of scary to most people, but what makes me thrive to try to do it is how far back you are, how, how much of an adventure it is that you are literally pushing every limit of your body to get back in to hunt these animals, which these animals don't really see humans. Yeah. And I love that fact. And there is, Last year, for my knowledge, there was multiple guides guides that hunt in this area, not new people, guides that slipped, fell, and they are dead back in those mountains, and they are still there because they are so far back in that people can't get them out. That's scary. That's crazy. 
That is nuts to most people, but I like that adventure of pushing my body, pushing everything I have to get back into a country like that and truly have one-on-one me being an apex predator and trying to pursue an animal like this. And these animals, Ibex, Marco Polo, and Altai Argali are amazing to the, the Marco Polo and Altai Argali are two like bighorn sheep, but a different version. And they are so big and beautiful and majestic. And then the Ibex is more of a goat. Um, that's my, that's my, that's my dream hunt. Hands down. I would love to experience that. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at pictures, you know, while you've been talking, I was pulling up pictures of them and I mean, they're just incredible. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, and I'm curious, like I'm, I'm looking at some of these photos and you know, the, the Marco Polo sheep and the Altair Gali. I mean, these things are like past 360 degree curl. Like, Oh yeah. These things are like, they're full curl and a half to two curl. (laughs) That's insane. And it's like, I'm just curious, like, how old are these things to grow like that? I mean... You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure their, their life expectancy. I, I, I couldn't even answer that for you. And, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's just their genetics, the way they're just a whole different continent. And they are still a subspecies of what we know for bighorn sheep and essentially goats. They just grow away differently. And they knowing how they are out there living that lifestyle of not seeing humans and being that deep of, of wilderness. It's just so appealing to me and their bodies are absolutely huge compared to what we know. They're, they're just amazing. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm totally in awe of these things. And then the, the Ibex, like I've, I've seen pictures of Ibex before, but they're just such, it looks like, they just look like some strange creature out of like some anime cartoon or something. That, <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, it kind of looks like a real animal, but then somebody like some cartoon artist or some fantasy artist just decided to like make it look kind of ridiculous. <laughs> um, like, yeah, I just, I, they're, they're such cool animals. Um, the one, of the, the one thing I've actually been getting super into lately uh that i that i just didn't know about and uh that you could hunt uh is Audad, the barbary sheep Audad, yes my my wife and i both harvested one last year um from texas and she she beat me she got a bigger one <laughs> <laughs> but good for her she she uh she likes to hunt oddball animals she doesn't like <laughs> to get the normal animals like i do elk and deer and bear she has, you know, our house, I've got the elk and the deer and the bear, rugs and, and hides everywhere. And she likes to harvest and have the odd stuff mounted. She's got an amazing big odd ad. She's got an alligator, wild pigs, turkeys. Like, she just goes different, and I love it. But, yeah, we went and experienced that. And that's, it's actually a really uh, easy hunt to do do i don't mean easy as the hunt goes but to be able to just go and do it it's in texas essentially statewide of texas and new mexico new mexico you have to apply and draw it Mm -hmm. texas you can either hunt free range on the west side where there's public land or you can hunt private property either high fenced or low fenced but there is odd out across the entire state and they they are same that they they're in that category of the the Marco Polo and the Altai Argali and Ibex, they're just, they're so exotic looking and they are exotic as they are. And uh, they're pretty amazing. So yeah, I agree with you. Audat are pretty cool. I'm just like obsessed with those, those beards that like mane they have that goes all the way down their legs. Chaps. It's just, they it's... call them chaps. Oh yeah. Yeah. All the way down from right below their neck, down their chest, down to all the way to their knees. And then they literally stop right at the knees. And then the bottom of their legs are just empty without chaps. It's, it's <laughs> cool. They are amazing critters. And those are very tough animals to hunt. They are so keen to their senses. They are very, very tough to hunt. So what would you, what would you say is, is the most difficult animal that you've had to hunt? The toughest one to take? 
whether that's because of terrain or their senses or, you know, I mean, a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Well, bow hunting obviously is much more difficult than anything, but, um, yeah. So we'll say it's bow hunting, but elk are extremely hard to hunt, especially for people new to it. And don't understand the language of calling them in and playing the wind out and being in that rugged and steep of country. That's really tough. But for me, I would say black-tailed deer are the hardest animals to hunt. I'm from Southern Oregon, and black-tailed deer are ghosts. They are just ghosts. They disappear. I don't know how they disappear, but they disappear. Um, <laughs> they, bow hunting black-tailed deer is extremely tough. They are very, very smart. They blend into their surroundings, and they are extremely keen to their senses. So I would, I would say black-tailed deer... And then with my new knowledge of this previous hunt, Coos Whitetail. I think those are right in that same category of how keen they are to the senses and how tough it is to actually stalk them with a bow. Yeah, I'm, I, I, yeah, I don't even know. I'm kind of at the point where I'm, once I, once I get back from, from my elk trip uh, at the end of this month, I'm going to, I'm going to start in on planning my, my Coos trip. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure on myself for that trip. One, because I know I literally everything I've heard from everyone is that they're impossible to see. They're insanely alert, and you know there's just not a lot of places to hide when you're stalking them in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm you know I'm just excited to go out and try something new. But I'm trying to. I'm definitely trying to find more resources. Same kind of thing, you know, as with bears. You know, you you get a little bit more with deer hunting, I feel like, but there's still not that super obsessive fascination that people have with elk. And so it's it's definitely more difficult to find really reliable, cohesive resources that give you the whole story. Um, you know, I think that's what what's missing is you can find really good info about different parts and you have to bring that all together and stitch it together yourself, which, you know, I'm all the, all of these resources for elk, I guess have kind of made me lazy. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. You think that now until you get to the elk woods. <laughs> well, I should, I should say the, the re- lazy for the research portion I've been. Yes. Yes. It makes it so much accessible and easier than you would expect compared to other critters. I've, I I will admit I've spent the last six months busting my uh, getting ready for this. So I'm I'm I will I will say without hesitation that I'm in the best shape of my life. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, that's not saying a lot <laughs> with the shape I was previously in, but you know, I as far as I could be with the time I had, I am as ready as humanly possible. I just need to get the heck out of LA and into the elk woods. <laughs> yes. I got to get, I got to get there. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love it. Yep. And that, like you were trying to say earlier, uh, getting out of the city and out of contact and essentially disconnecting from, from everything. To me, I like to look at it as I'm not disconnecting from everything. I like to look at it that I'm, I'm connecting with the wild, with my roots, mm-hmm. with, with where I need to be. That's, that's connecting for me. I don't care about disconnecting from what life is now. You don't find yourself until you're out in the mountains like that and enjoying nothing but nature, either by yourself or with loved ones, and experience raw life, essentially. There's, you know, there's this stupid little meme that, uh, I posted ages ago, and it it gets passed around every now and again. But I absolutely love it because it's so true. But it's, you know, it's just it's a picture of the forest, and it says, you know, there's no Wi-Fi out in the forest, but you'll always find a better connection. Yes, um, I love it. Uh, yeah, no, I absolutely love it. And I was, I was, like I said, I was talking with Cody. I just released uh, uh, my episode talking with Cody Rich uh, as of the day we're recording this today, um, and. You know, there's a quote in that episode that I just, I love from him. And he pretty much just says, he's like, you know what? Everyone in the world should be forced to hunt 10 days in the backwoods. Like, yeah, just so hunt solo 10 days in the backwoods. 
there's nothing uh there's nothing that tells you who you are better than that exactly like, that's so true when you don't have distractions you don't have other other people you know uh, taking the lead you have to make decisions for yourself you have to sometimes deal with dangerous situations and it's you know i mean i've done more than my fair share of solo camping and hiking and you know i've i've done a ton out in the desert and a ton up in the woods but nothing to this extent yet and i'm i am you know i'm sure it will teach me quite a few things about myself it will it it absolutely will <laughs> you definitely find yourself out in the wild by yourself and in the elk woods in september packing in bivyacking into the wilderness by yourself where you're bringing water filtration packing in for me mountain houses jet boil dehydrated food I pack everything in, and the longest stint I've done by myself in the wilderness without coming out has been 22 days. Holy crap. Yeah, that was ridiculous. Felt like I was about to start talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I just, I miss that. When I come back and my phone's blowing up from work and I am around grumpy people and shitty drivers honking and all the crap, bad stuff on the news, you name it. It just sucks. And I miss, I always miss and can't wait to get back to that point of laying under the stars. And in the Elkwoods in September when they're rutting, you're laying there sleeping and you either get woke up from it or you're not sleeping yet. And you wake up to a herd of elk walking by you, cows mewing, bulls bugling, hearing them crunching. I mean, I've had them so close to camp where I can hear them farting and pissing right by me. Like, <laughs> just literally, elk do. They fart. They do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and experience that. Like, beautiful, beautiful sunrise, beautiful sunset, seeing the stars, midday naps, even the bad side of it, of just getting pissed on from a fat storm that moves into the wilderness and thunder and lightning on top of you and crazy rain and you're trying to find shelter and you're in your rain gear. You start getting wet, but then you, you start to get to that point where you just like enjoy it. You sit back and you enjoy mother nature and the earth just all in its raw and it, it's unreal. I mean, you don't, you don't have the smells like you have down here when you're in the mountains, fresh rain, that kind of crazy thunder and lightning storm that you have in the mountains. There's nothing like what you're going to experience down in the city. Um, all the sounds and I mean everything. There's just nothing like it. It's absolutely amazing. I just I I love it. I live for it. And like like you said with the memes and everything. Like that is that is connecting. That is it right there. And <clears throat> that's really that's that's the hunt. That's that's the trophy. Yes, when you get a harvest animal and you're gonna bring all that quality protein and meat back home. Yeah, that's a blessing. That's that's successful in some eyes, but being out there, that's success on its own. You know what I mean? It, it is, it's just whatever you, you're going to make out of it. But I feel like most people that enjoy the backcountry and legitimately do that, it doesn't matter if you harvest or not being out there. That's, that's the trophy. No, absolutely. Um, well, man, as we're, uh, as we're kind of winding, uh, winding down here, I always like to end with, uh, some words of wisdom or advice for, the aspiring hunter, uh, you know, who may just be new to all of this, or maybe someone like me who's born and raised in the city, didn't grow up in it, um, but someone that may feel just a little intimidated or, or overwhelmed by getting into this. What's, uh, what's your advice for that person? Um, somebody's got to help somebody else get into this. It's tough. Yes, you could do it yourself and look into the resources. But most people in this industry that are like me and obsessed are more than willing to help people. I love helping people. I love taking new people out. So anybody that's listening that's new to hunting and is intimidated and wants more knowledge and just wants to bull with somebody and understand the true ins and outs of just talking to another person and figuring this out, just reach out to somebody. Whether it's through you to reach to somebody else if they're listening to this, looking up people on Instagram, on Facebook, whatever it is, and just reaching out to people 
because most people in the, this industry are the same as me and they just, they want to help more people get into this, into this lifestyle. And we're most all of us, at least the community around me, which is a lot of people are more than welcome or more, more than willing to, to help people. And anybody that wants to reach out to me through Instagram, Facebook, anything is more than welcome. And, and that's just, that's a beautiful thing. Like I was saying earlier in this episode that it's such an open arms type of community and industry that you create so many friendships and get to talk to so many cool people, but that, that relates into people just helping other people trying to get into this. So it's really easy as long as people are just open to trying to reach out and talk to more people. It just, it makes it so much easier and, and it makes it fun. So speaking of reaching out, where uh, is the best place to find you online if people wanted to follow all the all the rogue dude? Um, so my my social media threads are rogue dude underscore official for Instagram, and just just for note, most people screw up on rogue and spell it rouge. It's R O G U E, not rouge. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people do that, but. They can reach out Rouge to Dude Official Rouge is your Dude. alter ego that uh, <laughs> yeah. happens on the weekends. Yes. Stop yes. it. Depends <laughs> on how much tequila I have. <laughs> um, yeah, so Rogue Dude underscore official is my Instagram. Uh, um, there's also a Rogue Dude for Facebook for the business. And then there is also my personal Facebook, which is Corey Staniforth. And Corey is C O R Y. Staniforth is S T A N I. F O R T H. So more than willing to help anybody out and talk to anybody. If you just want to reach out. Awesome. And I'll make sure to link to your pages and everything, um, from our show notes page. That's going to be living country in the city.com slash 35. Uh, do you, does rogue dude have an official website too? Yes. The website for rogue dude apparel is, uh, it's just rogue dude.com real simple. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for hopping on. Uh, I really appreciate it. I think everyone's going to get a kick out of this episode. So, I, once again, I really appreciate you coming on tonight. Absolutely. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me. This has been fun. All right, y'all. That'll do it for episode 35 of Living Country in the City. Make sure you head on over to our show notes page at livingcountryinthecity.com slash 35. Uh, you can check out all of Corey's links there. Give him a follow on Instagram, and make sure you check out all the gear over at roguedude.com. There's some really cool stuff for you to check out. Also, make sure you don't miss out on a single episode. If you haven't done so already, search for Living Country in the City on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. After that, make sure you head on over to iTunes or Stitcher and give us a quick rating or review. I really appreciate it, and it helps the podcast grow. Here's hoping that after this, I'll have some really good news for y'all and some awesome pictures from my hunt. But in the meantime, keep it country, y'all. Thank y'all for listening to Living Country in the City. Get show notes and check out the blog, product reviews, events, and more at livingcountryinthecity.com. Not rouge, dude. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>